Hello, party people. Welcome back to What's True for Everybody. This is Experience 7, and I'm calling this Movement Matters. And let's get right into this. I got a text message from a friend of mine this week, and uh, this is a really great dude. I've known him for several years, and his story is a little bit like mine. He, like me, knew about God and believed in God most of his life, but he didn't always live out what he believed. And can anyone else besides me relate to my friend? It's like you, you believe something in your head, but if someone followed you around for a few days and they knew what you believed in their head, they would see that something about how you were living didn't line up with what you believed. And so now my friend is in the process, like we all are, of growing in faith and trying to figure out what it means to live out the ways of Jesus in every area of his life. And particularly for him, he's trying to figure out how to handle being around people who are used to him being the person he used to be. (laughs) Come on, who knows what this is like? Have you ever had someone wonder why you're noticeably different than you used to be in the way you behave or the way you speak, the way you carry yourself? And to be honest, they think you're a little bit weird now. Like, what happened to you? So my friend texted me this week to ask a few questions about that. And by the way, uh, we're never done with this process. We've never arrived. We're always trying to figure out how to live out the ways of Jesus better than we currently are. Thomas Merton had this great line. He once wrote, when it comes to the spiritual life, we are always beginners. I love that line. When it comes to the spiritual life, we are always beginners. So this situation, this this isn't unique to my friend, but here's why I loved my friend's text message so much and why it excited me so much. There's movement. He is moving closer to Jesus today than he was yesterday. And that's what it's about. Movement matters. And when you don't focus on the movement, you tend to focus on something else. And oftentimes that something else becomes categories of who's in and who's out when it comes to the kingdom of God. And I would suggest that's not what really mattered to Jesus. In and out didn't seem to matter that much to Jesus. Movement mattered to Jesus. And here's what I mean. Here's a couple stories. First, uh, this is from John chapter 2, the Gospel of John. Uh, The story is about Jesus clearing the temple courts. So the story goes like this. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and in the temple courts, he finds people selling cattle and sheep and doves and He sees others sitting at tables collecting money. And these people are making a profit off of the place where other people came to worship, where people came to move closer to God. And we'll point this out again later, but the people who are making this profit are some of the super religious people of the day. They're the ones who are supposed to be helping others move closer to God. Instead, they're making money off of it, and Jesus isn't having any of this. So he makes this whip out of cords, which would have taken a while. So what he's about to do, this isn't like a snap decision. It would have taken, I don't know, know, an hour, two hours, three hours to make a whip out of cords. 
And so he's thought about this. And so he makes this whip and he goes back into the temple courts and he drives out the people and the sheep and the cattle out of the temple courts. We're told he overturns tables and scatters the coins all over the place. And I don't know about you, but I would have loved to see this. This would have been fun to watch. If this were a TV show, it would have gotten really good ratings. And Jesus tells the people to get the doves out of there and to stop turning God's house into a market. And so these Jewish leaders, these Jewish religious people, who are, they're ticked now because Jesus has just ruined their profits for the day and, and given them quite a bad rap in the process. And so they ask Jesus to prove to them that he has authority to come into the temple, into God's house, and to do this. And Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the religious people are like, yeah, right. It's taken 46 years to build this thing. That's 16,790 days, not including leap year days, by the way. And, and you're going to raise it in three? I mean, we know you're a carpenter at all, but give us a break. I mean, you worked on our friend Eddie's house, and to be honest, the craftsmanship wasn't that good. I made that last part up, by the way. I don't know who Eddie is, or if he had a house, or if he does have a house, or did have a house. I have no idea if Jesus worked on it. But anyway, the writer John tells us the temple Jesus was talking about wasn't the physical building they were in. It was his body. See, this is a foreshadowing of the resurrection. And then you get to verse 22 of John chapter 4 in the story, and John writes this. After he, being Jesus, was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So after Jesus is resurrected, his disciples remember what Jesus said here in the temple, and this particular version of the Bible tells us that then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. And my first reaction is, wait, what? They didn't believe what Jesus said when Jesus told them these things? Like that wasn't enough? It took the resurrection for them to believe? Well, probably not. Here's why. Uh, the version that I'm reading this from is, is the New International Version of the Bible. And I looked in three other versions of the Bible, and none of them had the word then in this passage. They all had the word and, which means Jesus is resurrected and the disciples remember what Jesus had said in the temple and they believed. And scholars here talk about how this is referring to a deepening of the disciples' faith, a faith that they already possess, that they already have, which means what they saw being the resurrection help them believe what they heard, being the words from Jesus in the scriptures. And it grew their faith. Their faith grew. What they had seen helped them believe what they had heard previously, and their faith grew. In other words, there was movement. But let's remember who these people are. These are Jesus' disciples. They're supposed to believe, right? I mean, their faith is supposed to be deepened. They're Jesus' best friends for crying out loud. They're on the inside. If there are in and out categories, these guys are definitely in. So we expect this. 
The disciples believing that Jesus is the Messiah and his words are true doesn't shock us at all. In fact, we could even ask, what took them so long? They're in. They're supposed to believe this. But nevertheless, there's movement. And movement matters. Now, here's the second story. And this is two chapters later. This is John chapter 4 now. This is actually only three stories after the story of Jesus clearing the temple and the disciples' faith, we're told, gets deepened after the resurrection. So in this story, Jesus leaves this area called Judea and heads back to this area called Galilee, which is north. He's going north. And in between Judea and Galilee is a place called Samaria. So John, the writer, tells us that Jesus has to go through Samaria in order to get from Judea to Galilee, which in a way, he does. Uh, But Jesus doesn't have to stop in Samaria, which he does. So Jesus stops in Samaria at this well at noon, we're told, which is the hottest part of the day. And most people didn't go to the well at noon. It was too hot. The people who did walk to the well at noon to draw water were people who didn't want to be seen by anybody else. So the Samaritan woman, we're told, walks up to the well. So immediately we know, okay, there's something going on with this woman where she doesn't really want to interact with anybody. She doesn't want to be seen. So Jesus, being Jesus, initiates a conversation with this woman about water, which is really a conversation about himself. Jesus then points out an area of her life where she isn't living how God would have her live. And he doesn't do this in a judgmental, jerky kind of way, but in a loving, forgiving kind of way. He does it in a way that points out there's a more life-giving way to go about things than she's currently doing. And this woman, after this interaction with Jesus, walks away changed, which means there's movement. And then John tells us that the disciples here see Jesus talking to this woman, and they're a bit confused. And they're confused, uh, for one, because she's a woman. And in the time, respected religious men didn't have one-on-one conversations with women in public. But there's another reason, perhaps a deeper reason, why the disciples are confused and wondering why Jesus is talking to this woman. More on that in a moment. But here's what the woman does after leaving Jesus. And this is John chapter 4, and this is uh, verses 28 to 30, and then verses 39 to 42. John writes this. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, meaning to other Samaritans, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Then fast forward to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him, in Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So now, not only 
Does this one Samaritan woman believe? But many more Samaritans believe, and not only through what the woman told them, but also through their own experience with Jesus. I mean, Jesus had just stayed with them for two days. And if you are observing this live in the first century, and you have these strict in and out categories, if you think you have the market cornered on knowing who gets to be a part of God's kingdom and who doesn't get this luxury, what has just happened with this woman and with these Samaritans is absolutely making your head spin and it is turning your categories upside down. Why? Because these are Samaritans. Samaritans weren't supposed to believe. Samaritans were on the outside. See, some context here is helpful. Jews hated Samaritans. For instance, at one point in the Gospels, Jesus' disciples, who remember, are part of the in group, asked Jesus if he wanted them to call fire down from heaven to wipe out the Samaritans. That's what they thought of Samaritans. At another point in John's Gospel, these Jewish religious folk who are opposing Jesus, they said to Jesus, uh, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? <laughs> That's what they thought of Samaritans. They were, they were right along the demon-possessed. That's what Jews thought of Samaritans. And remember at the beginning of the story, when John told us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He's going from Judea north to Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria. Well, there's a part of that that's true. Samaria was in between Judea and Galilee. But there's a piece to that that isn't completely accurate. He didn't have to go through Samaria. See, sometimes people would take a route around Samaria to the east of Samaria, which would take much, much longer, but they would do this just to avoid going through Samaria and to avoid the Samaritans. It's like when, I, uh, when we moved to Colorado from Texas, I drove uh, my car here and uh, some of our stuff, and I went north uh, through Texas, out of Texas, into Oklahoma, and then into Kansas, where I spent the night before going west from Kansas into Colorado. So in between Texas, where I started, and Kansas, where I spent the night, was Oklahoma. So I had to go through Oklahoma. Only I didn't have to go through Oklahoma. I could have gone east of Oklahoma and gone through Arkansas and Missouri going north and then back west into Kansas. That just would have taken infinitely longer. I had to go through Oklahoma to get to Kansas, but I didn't actually have to go through Oklahoma. There would have been a much longer route. And if you're a Jew in the first century, if you did go through Samaria... You certainly didn't stop there. But Jesus does go through Samaria, and he does stop in Samaria. By the way, I did stop in Oklahoma at a Chick-fil-A, and it was quite nice. Why does Jesus stop in Samaria? Jesus goes through Samaria, and he stops in Samaria because he wants to be a part of the Samaritan woman's and these many Samaritan people's movement. And so here's what you have in just a few short stories here. Within a few stories of each other in John's gospel, people who are considered in are moving toward Jesus, and people who are considered 
out are moving toward Jesus. And movement matters. Now, let's take this a step further. Uh, What does this mean for you and me? Let's talk about the boundary versus the center. Imagine you're living in the first century and you have animals and you want to keep track of these animals or these, this livestock and, and you don't want your animals to wander off. You didn't build a fence if you wanted your animals to not wander off. Instead, you dug a well. So instead of a fence surrounding the animals so they physically couldn't leave or go any further, the animals actually surrounded a well. The well was the middle. The well was the center. And your animals knew that this well, this water, was so life-giving, which, by the way, is another connection to Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman in John 4, life-giving water. Your animals knew that this well, this water, was so life-giving that if they wandered or strayed too far away from it, they wouldn't survive. It's a pastor named John Ortberg. Uh, He's now a pastor of a church out in the San Francisco area. And his latest book is called Eternity is Now in Session. And in this book, he talks about the boundary versus the center. And this is an idea that he heard uh, some time ago from one of his old teachers. And it's the idea of the two different ways to determine whether an object is in or out. The first way, he says, is called the boundary set. And with the boundary set, you determine whether an object is in or out by carefully determining the boundary. Um, So something is in and out, and there's really no questions about it. For instance, if your boundary is Apple products, iPhone is in, Samsung Galaxy is out. Pretty clear. No questions, no really actually room for debate. Uh, another example, if your boundary is good TV shows in the 90s, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Say by the Bell, Seinfeld, in. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Party of Five, Clarissa Explains It All, out. It's pretty clear, no real room for debate here. So when it comes to being part of the kingdom of God, or it comes to following Jesus. The boundary we're given is often defined as praying a certain prayer or coming down the aisle at church when a pastor gives an invitation to be saved or saying out loud that you believe Jesus is Lord. Those are often, that's often the boundary that we're given for someone who is in or for someone who is out. But here's the problem with the boundary set. The problem is once you're in, where do you go? What do you do? It's, it's actually pretty static. There is this criteria for getting in, and once you get in, you're in. And there's often not a lot more emphasis to keep moving. For instance, do you know anyone who tells you they're a follower of Jesus, yet they see no real issue with gossiping or with not being compassionate to someone who's in need or they see no issue with being greedy or chasing more and more possessions. Now, none of us is perfect. We all have our our, our stuff, and, and we all have things to work on. 
But oftentimes, if you meet people who say they're a follower of Jesus, but they have no issue with these kinds of things, it's because they've subscribed to a boundary idea of following Jesus, which means they did the minimum they needed to do to get in, and I'm using quotation marks for that, to get in. Uh, So really, what's left to work on? Or what's the point of doing more? Like, you're in. That's all, that's all that matters. And now you get to determine if other people are in or if they're out. The boundary set is the static mindset. The other option, says John Ortberg, is the centered set. And with the centered set, objects aren't defined by if they are inside or outside the boundary. Instead, they're defined by their orientation to the center or to the well. And so now, this isn't a static mindset, this is a dynamic mindset, because there's always room to move. And in the centered set, everyone is in the game. This is what I love about this. Everyone is in the game, not just those who have done the minimum to cross some sort of boundary. So for our purposes, the center is Jesus. And Jesus says the most important things for his followers to do are to love God and to love people. So now the question becomes, it's not, am I in or not? Have I done the minimum amount to cross this boundary? The question now is, how close to the center am I when it comes to loving God and to loving people? And wherever we find ourselves in orientation to the center, to Jesus, there is always room to move in either direction. You can either move closer to it or you can move away from it. Now, I am all for praying prayers and for proclaiming out loud that Jesus is Lord. Let's keep doing that. More people need to do that. Like the centered step, it still involves how we believe and how we think and how we speak. But what we need to understand is that Jesus never once gave a minimum entrance requirement to being part of his kingdom. Jesus didn't use a boundary set. What Jesus did is he told us where the center is, and he was adamant about how urgent it is that we get as close to that center as we can, no matter who you are. When you read through the Gospels, and Jesus never seemed to have in and out categories, except except when he was talking to people who were sure they were in. This book by John Ortberg that I've been talking about, Eternity is now in session. John Ortberg says this in it. He says, What got Jesus into more trouble than anything else is that he often warned people who were sure they were insiders, that they were in danger of being outside. And he treated people everyone knew were outsiders as though they might actually be in. Samaritans, lepers, centurions, Canaanite women, divorcees, and more were treated this way. And may I remind you, it is religious people that Jesus kicked out of the temple that one day in John chapter 4, or John chapter 2, excuse me. And here's what's true for everybody. You and I, we are either moving toward the center or we're moving away from it with how we're living, with how we're treating people, with, how, uh, with what we believe to be true about Jesus. And when we focus on the center 
and where we are in relation to it. And we continue to strive to get closer and closer. In and out categories just become irrelevant. I mean, we realize it's not helpful for us to judge who's in and who's out. And by the way, it's not up to us anyway. John Ortberg also says this. If following Jesus is about the center, then we will want to constantly orient ourselves toward God and his will and his love. We will want to ever be we will want to be ever moving toward it. We will want to invite and help other people to be ever moving toward it. What matters is the orientation and posture of our lives. We are not worried about who is us and who is them. We know that God knows, and that is enough for us. Movement matters. The question is, which way are you moving? And here's another question. What is one thing you can start doing this week, or stop doing this week, to move towards the center, to move towards Jesus? Start with one thing. Maybe it has to do with the way you're treating your body. Maybe it has to do with the way you're treating someone else's body. Maybe it has to do with your words. Maybe it has to do with your neighbor. Maybe it has to do with your attitude or your generosity or your prayers. Maybe it has to do with helping someone else move toward the center. Maybe, just maybe, it has to do with you stopping the judgment of who is in and who is out. Because for one, that's not up to us. And for two, you may be surprised at who is actually moving toward the center. If you knew who is actually moving toward Jesus, it may cause you to think, wait, wait, what, them? But they said this, or they do this, or they support this politician, or they love cats. (laughs) Yep, even the cat lovers might be moving toward the center. Which way are you moving? Let's end with this. Many of us have heard and know the story of Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was a juvenile troublemaker turned track stud who became a famous Olympian. They called him the Torrance Tornado. Turned World War II fighter, turned Japanese prisoner of war, turned passionate Jesus follower. Louis survived 47 days on a raft in the middle of the sea when his plane was shot down in World War II. And while he was on the raft, he prayed to God. He said, if you save me, I'll serve you forever. Then the Japanese found him and they locked him in a POW camp where he was beaten, he was humiliated, he was tortured, uh, and where he continued to pray to be saved. And he was saved. He came home. And then at home, he was absolutely tormented by his own fear and his anger. He drank too much. He yelled. He lied. He irresponsibly lost money. He, he bullied those around him, including his wife. He, he contemplated suicide. And at one point, his wife had had enough, and she, she made him go with her to a revival meeting led by Billy Graham. And at the end of Billy's sermon, he invited people who didn't know Jesus to come forward and to begin a relationship with Jesus. And it was then that Louis Zamperini remembered his prayer, If you save me, I'll serve you forever. So Louis walked to the front. 
and you started a relationship with Jesus. See, see, let's not rag on coming forward or on praying or prayer to begin a relationship with Jesus. That matters, and it's impacted many, many, many lives for Jesus. But those actions are not a boundary that releases you from any other work. Those actions are actually a really important movement towards the center. The movement towards the center, it begins with the first movement. And I believe you can't move towards the center on accident. It takes intention. It takes conscious decisions. And so after that day, Louis continued to move. He went home and he threw away the liquor. He threw away the inappropriate magazines he had. He found the Bible that was given to him when he joined the Air Corps and he began to read about Jesus. He began to live for Jesus in every area of his life. He began to talk about Jesus to anyone who would listen. And the book about his story, Unbroken, uh, written by Laura Hillenbrand, she said this, in the book she said this, when he thought of his history, what resonated with, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. His rage, his fear, his humiliation and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed. He was a new creation. And now that's a movement. That's a movement. That's a movement towards being a new creation. Louis Zamperini's movement matters. My friend who sent me the text message, his movement matters. In John chapter 2, the disciples' movement matters. In John chapter 4, the Samaritans' movement matters. My movement matters. Your movement matters. And can you imagine what your life in this world could be like if we all started doing everything we can to move towards Jesus? Can you imagine how free we would be if we stopped focusing on boundaries and started focusing on the center? Can you imagine how inspired and empowered and excited some people would be if others stopped telling them they were out and started telling them that they too are in the game and it's time for them, like it is for us, to move because when it comes to the spiritual life, we're always beginners. So my friends, let's move. Much love to you all. We'll see you next time.